If you have your Bibles, if you'll open it up with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. This week we did witness just how thin the line is between life and death. I know Thursday night I had a hard time sleeping. I was disturbed. You think about our country right now and some of the racial tensions that are overflowing. Uh, I told my my two oldest daughters about what had happened in Dallas and the officers that were shot every night before we go to bed. We pray together. We have a time of Bible. We call it Bible time. That night as they prayed, my heart just sank because uh, Karis, my oldest, prayed for the little kids who would not have a daddy come home that night. And she prayed for God's comfort to be with them. And I think many people have this nagging sense that the very nation whose birthday that we celebrated on Monday uh, could be at a point where it begins to unravel before our very eyes. And whenever you have that sense, it's rightfully disturbing. There is also, though, a reality. King Solomon once wrote that there is nothing new under the sun. The problems that we deal with, people have been dealing with for many centuries. They just come in different forms. In Jesus' day, the Roman army had conquered most of the settled world. And so people lived with a tremendous amount of injustice. They lived under oppression. We don't usually think of Jesus as a slave, but in a very real way, uh, all those that had been conquered by Rome, they were slaves to Rome. Within the biblical time, racism was rampant. You had the Jews that didn't like the Gentiles. They were racist towards the Samaritans, and the feelings were mutual. And so wherever you went, there was a tremendous amount of racism in the regions. There was also a lot of unjust killing. There was a political group that had grown up called the Zealots. The Zealots were upset of their countrymen there in Palestine who uh, they felt like were being friendly towards Rome. And so what the zealots would do is they would sneak up behind those that they felt were traitors and they would stab them in the back in a crowd and kill them. It was not uncommon for the Romans to crucify people along the side of the road. So whenever you took your family on a journey, you very well might have your children go past people who were dying, gasping for air on a Roman cross. And so like... Many today, people in biblical days were looking for answers. Onto the scene came this wild man, this man out of the wilderness, this man that dressed differently, ate differently, talked differently. His name was John the Baptist, and he quickly became a national celebrity. He had a message of hope. His message was that the Messiah that people had longed for for years, the one who would overcome the Savior was here, and that people needed to change their way of living and repent. And the sign that he used for people to repent and prepare for the Messiah was baptism. He would baptize people, and that was an outward sign of the repentance that was taking, care, taking place in their heart. 
In chapter 3 and verse 21, something very unique happens. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, I take delight in you. Now you may have noticed that baptism is pretty important around here. Uh, We often uh, call ourselves Murphy Church, or some people will abbreviate it MRBC or something like that. But we still have Baptist in our name. And so people ask, well, what on earth does baptism mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Today, I'm I'm actually going to do a little bit more teaching than preaching. And I want to talk to you about what does it mean to be baptized? And why is it so significant? I think you may discover that it is grounded in a heritage that you never knew existed. It actually has ancient roots. In Judaism, there was the mikvah, and whenever someone wanted to uh, achieve spiritual purification, they would immerse themselves in water, and they called it a symbol of life and death meeting in one's body. It also became a symbol of conversion during the Old Testament era. Not everybody that was part of Israel was Jewish in their ethnicity. There were Gentiles who believed in Yahweh and followed Him, and so the way that they would come into the covenant is to be baptized. And then you have John the Baptist who comes onto the scene, and he practices a baptism of repentance. People would be immersed in water, and it was a symbol of turning from sin and preparing yourself for the coming Messiah. Now, this leads to an interesting question. Why was Jesus baptized? I mean, Jesus didn't have any sin from which to repent. Why would He need to be baptized? Jesus didn't need to look forward to the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So why was He baptized? Well, let me give you six reasons why Jesus was baptized. Number one, it validated the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been saying, I am the messenger sent from God to prepare the way. The Messiah is coming, and now Jesus comes, and John the Baptist says, here he is. This is the one that I've been talking to you about. Here here he is. The Messiah is here. Secondly, it became a public announcement that Jesus is the Son of God. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus is baptized, and as He is coming up out of the water and they are praying, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descends on Jesus as a dove, and a voice from heaven is heard saying, This is my beloved Son. He was given the title by God the Father as the Son of God. Now, I have two sons, and I might refer to each of them as my son. But in biblical days, the son was a formal title. You would have one son. That son was your heir. And so when God says, this is the son of God, 
God the Father is saying, this is my heir. This is the one that everything that I have also belongs to him. He is my beloved son. Thirdly, Jesus' baptism showed that he's a part of the Trinity. You have right here in Scripture, God the Father speaking, God the Holy Spirit descending, and God the Son coming up out of the water. The Trinity, the three-in-oneness of God on display. Fourth, Jesus' baptism provides for you and me an example of what baptism is to look like. And today as Christians, whenever we follow God and we follow Christ in salvation, we go public with our faith by being baptized and we follow the example that Jesus set for us. Fifth, it foreshadowed the cross. The baptism of Jesus is the inauguration of his ministry, and at the beginning of his ministry, he foreshadowed how he would die. When Jesus was in the water, it signified his death on the cross. When he was taken down below the water, it signified the time in the tomb. And whenever he was raised back up, it symbolized the resurrection. And then six, it also revealed to us the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Romans 6 talks about this along with some passages in Galatians that whenever you become a believer in Christ, The Holy Spirit immerses you in Christ. And because you are baptized, immersed by the Spirit in Christ, God sees you in Jesus. So He sees you as righteous, not because you have never sinned, but because you have been immersed into the body of Jesus Christ. And you have eternal life because you have been baptized into Christ, the one who conquered death. Now, just before Jesus ascended to go back to heaven, he gathered his followers, his disciples together, and he gave them what we call the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. The Bible says that Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then notice what Jesus taught that we should do. He says, baptizing them. So whenever we make disciples, we are also to bring them into the church body and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then as they are baptized into the church body, we teach them to observe everything that Christ commanded us and remember always that Christ is with us to the end of the age. And so as you read the New Testament, you begin to discover that when someone became a believer in Jesus Christ, they were publicly baptized. And that baptism had a very significant meaning. It was a picture of their conversion. Here is my old life, my life before Christ. I am laying that life down, and now I am living as a follower of Christ. It was also a picture of belief. Baptism was done in a public manner. It was a public confession. You are telling everybody, I believe that Jesus Christ 
died for my sins and rose again, and I, as an individual, am publicly identifying my life with his. He is my Savior. And it was also a picture of commitment. I am a part of the local church. I am desiring to follow Christ in every area of my life, and I am being baptized as a commitment, a sign of my commitment. You say, well, Lash, uh, when I was a baby, my parents took me down to the church, and I was baptized. So tell me a little bit, what is this infant baptism all about? Well, I'm, once again, glad you asked. Uh, In the Bible, you do not find examples of babies being baptized. Now, you do find uh, babies were taken to the temple, and there they were dedicated. Christ was taken to the temple and dedicated. And you also find that little boys were circumcised as a sign that the child was part of the covenant between God and His people. But you don't find babies being baptized. If you go back in church history, you will discover that as the church became more and more formalized, as it became institutionalized, and the Catholic church became the dominant church uh, throughout the entire world, a false theology began to develop. And that theology is that grace is passed out to us through the church by sacraments. Rather than us receiving the grace of God through Christ, rather than God Himself granting us His amazing grace, the idea became that the church controlled the grace of God. And as you were obedient, as you took the Eucharist, as you were faithful to your marriage vows, as you went through confirmation, as you baptized your infants, you received uh, dispensations of grace from the church. And at the end of life, if you had enough grace, then you would be allowed into heaven. If you did not, you might have to spend some years in purgatory. And if you really did not have any grace whatsoever, you would be cast into hell. And that became the theology, and along with it became, came infant baptism. It was a sacrament. The idea was that the baby was born guilty of Adam's sin, and so the baby was baptized, and when the child was baptized, the sins were atoned for. And that became a dominant practice within the church. Now walk with me into the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. During that time period, there were two great houses of power in society. The first was the king. Wherever you lived, you were very likely to be under the rule of a king. And the king ruled with his word and his army. Secondly, you had the house of power that was the Catholic Church. And it was ruled by the Pope. Now, what is unique to you and me is that during that time period in history, the idea of the separation of church and state was nowhere to be found. It was a foreign thought to them. They did not 
think about the idea that the church and the state would be two separate entities. In fact, many of the laws were from the church. And so uh, whenever a child was born, one of the things that you would do is you would baptize that child. Each of my children, whenever they were born, you know, right after they're born, the first thing they do is they start making sure they have ten toes and ten fingers, and they do that test with them. I can't remember the name of it. I think it's called the star test, isn't it? Whenever they test them to make sure that they they have dexterity and all that good stuff. And so, uh, but right after they do that test, they begin asking us questions as to what we want on the birth certificate, because on the birth certificate, that's where they register the fact that you've had a child with the state. Well, back in the Middle Ages, whenever a baby was born, they, they didn't do birth certificates, they did baptismal certificates. And the way that the state knew that a child was born is that you took them down to the church and you had them baptized. How many of you were born in a hospital? Okay, you can put your hands down. How many of you think your grandparents were born in a hospital? How about your great-grandparents? Were they born in a hospital? No, they were probably born in a barn, you know? And the way that uh, the government knew that a child was born back in the Middle Ages was they would uh, receive a certificate of baptism and infants were baptized, and that became part of the fabric of society. In 1517, there was a monk by the name of Martin Luther. And he nailed what are now called the 95 Theses to the door at the church there in Wittenberg. And from that, with the help of the Gutenberg printing press, the Protestant Reformation began. And throughout all of Europe, there was a reformation of belief. The Protestant Reformation dramatically changed history, and it was built on three simple beliefs. The first was only Scripture. Scripture, rather than church tradition, was to be our guide. The second belief was only faith, which meant that God desires of Christians our faith, not the ritual sacraments. The third was only grace, meaning that salvation is a gift of grace, not a reward for good works. And so those three cries, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gracia, became the cries of the early Reformation. As time went past, they also added only Christ, meaning that Jesus was to be the mediator between us and God, not the priest. And then glory to God alone, meaning that all glory for salvation belongs to God, not to you not to the Virgin Mary, not to an Old Testament saint that might be worshipped by some, but glory belongs to God. Well, the Protestant Reformation radically changed Europe more than Brexit ever thought about. Quickly, Europe became an entirely different place, and it divided, and guess how it divided? It divided by religious affiliation. And so you had some areas that were Catholic. You had some areas that were Eastern Orthodox. You had other areas that were Lutheran, Calvinist, Anglican. You had the Bohemian Brethren, 
not the Bohemian Rhapsody, but you had the Bohemian Brethren areas. And the way it worked is that if you lived in that area, that's what you were. So if you lived in a Catholic area, you were Catholic. If you lived in an Anglican area, you were Anglican. The church and the state were not separated. And if you did not believe the way that that group of believers believed and you lived in that area, you were going to find yourself facing persecution and it was going to be very hard for you to exist. That's one of the reasons why many wound up leaving Europe because they sought something we call freedom. What kind of freedom did they seek? They sought freedom to worship God freely. They sought religious liberty. Well, these Protestant reformers did a lot of great things, and we are deeply indebted to them today. But there was one thing that they were a little bit scared to change, and that was infant baptism. The reason why they were a little scared to change that was because it was very, very special to the moms. You want to get a church upset. You upset all the mamas. You get all those mamas mad at you, and you're in big trouble. And infant baptism was very dear to the moms. It was woven into the fabric of society. So most of the Reformers, they did not want to change it. Instead, they modified it. And you see that today in Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches and a lot of the churches that embrace Reform theology. Baptism is seen as a, uh, a sign of the covenant between God and His people. It is seen as the New Testament equivalent of circumcision from the old, a covenant between God and His people. And so within those um, denominations, infants may be baptized as well as an adult who believes. And then the infant's salvation is contingent upon that person growing up and later confirming that they do receive the baptism that they had as a baby. In those traditions, the person usually has a choice. You can be immersed in water. You can have water poured over your head. You thought it would still be off. You can have water poured over your head, or you can be sprinkled. Because most of the people that are baptized in those traditions are babies, it usually takes place with sprinkling because it kind of ruins the entire baptism whenever you submerge the little baby in the water and, you know, everything kind of gets messed up from there. And so you see that in a lot of churches here in America today. The year is 1524. The scene is Zurich, Switzerland, the problem is that there are a group of radicals that have emerged in the church. Their leader is a man by the name of Felix Montz, also Conrad Grable, along with several others, and they did something that is very, very dangerous. They read their Bible. And so they came to some conclusions they came to the conclusion that in the New Testament that baptism always occurred after belief and that there were no examples in the New Testament 
of babies being baptized. They also came to the conclusion that whenever you read that word, baptismo, it means to dip or to immerse, that it doesn't mean to sprinkle. They came to the conclusion that all are free to attend church, but the church itself is to be made up of baptized believers. They call it regenerate church membership. Everyone's free to come and worship so long as they are peaceable, but to be an actual part of the church, you need to take that public step of baptism. When it comes to the state, that's where their ideas really began to get radical even more. They believe that the state had no business telling you how you are to worship, and that the church and the state should be separate. They believed that religious liberty is an inalienable right given to us from God above, not the state. That it was good if the state gave you religious liberty, but that didn't really matter because it was a gift from God, and they went so far with it that they believed that people even have the right to be wrong in how they worship and yet still free to worship. They believed in what is called a free church, that big decisions of the church should be made by the congregation. And they believed that there should not be an outside hierarchy that would tell the local church what they should do and how they should believe. They also believed in nonviolence because they believed that truth was more powerful than the sword. Well, they were in Switzerland. And so the main reformer there in Switzerland was a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. If you're looking for a name for your next child or grandchild, I suggest Ulrich. It's a good, solid, strong name. When that boy grows up to be a linebacker, it'll sound good coming from the public announce system. Tackle made by Ulrich. You like it? So they go to Zwingli, and they begin talking about this, and Zwingli tells them, you guys need to slow down. Society can only handle so much change at once. And so on January 21st, 1525, the council there in Zurich made it illegal for Mons and his group of radicals to share their views. That wintry night, the radicals met together. Each of them had been baptized as infants. That night, they baptized one another as believers. They immersed each other, and they became known as the Anabaptist. The elite in society were outraged. But the poor began to recognize what was happening. And all over Europe, people started getting baptized. It was the first time in centuries that the church had to grow through evangelism. January 5th, 1527. The jailer came for Felix Mons. 
His hands were bound, and he was led to a boat and taken out onto the river Lamont. History records the moments like this. His hands were tied, and he was made to squat down. A stick was stuck between his knees and above his elbows to immobilize him, and he was taken to the middle of the river. And there with his mother, brother, and his fellow rebaptizers shouting encouragement, he was tipped into the lake, a final death by baptism. Over the next 25 years, the average post-baptism life expectancy for an Anabaptist was 18 months. People that read their Bibles and came to the conclusion that baptism was to be by immersion, people that read their Bibles and came to the conclusion that baptism was to be a, a public declaration of conversion, those individuals were killed. They were thrown into rivers. They were hung in cages. They were burned at the stake. They were killed for their beliefs. Evil is always threatened by truth. They crucified Jesus, but death could not contain Him. There will always be those who wish to crucify truth, to silence it, to kill it, to make it go away. Some of you came to church today deeply unsettled because you feel like everywhere you look, people are trying to crucify truth. You remember Jesus? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, beaten and bleeding, he said, all those on the side of the truth hear my voice. I want to encourage you today not to worry so much about those who are attacking truth and instead concern yourself with your own commitment to the truth. To be a person who lives with the truth of Christ saturating every part of your life. You see, lies eventually die and then they tell new lies. But truth lives forever. When the United States was formed back in the early days of those of the Republic, it was about two centuries after Mons's death. And there was a small group of social outcasts in early America. They were known as the Baptists. And their views were thought to be outside of the mainstream. They believed in a free church, and they worked diligently to make sure that our nation would have separation of church and state because they feared that the same thing that happened in Europe would happen here and that you would have to worship based upon the territory in which you lived, and the government would tell you, this is how you are supposed to worship. And so they championed something called religious liberty, and they championed it as a divine right from God that a person 
had the freedom to worship as their conscience led. And they went so far with it that they felt that it should be extended to people that didn't believe exactly as they believed. And they also believed that truth was more powerful than the sword. Foundational to this group's belief was this idea that when one trusts in Christ as Savior and Lord, that you publicly proclaim that faith through believer's baptism by being immersed in the water and coming up out of the water as a testimony to your faith. Rooted in antiquity, but dripping with modern relevance. Believer's baptism paints the picture of the life of Christ. Bridging birth and death, hopelessness and forgiveness, rebellion and obedience, isolation and community. There's no other act in life that says so much with so little. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads. Brent and the band's going to come lead us in worship. Before they do, I want to ask you a couple questions. Number one, I want to ask you, has there been a time in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? If there has not been that time in your life, I invite you to open your heart right now and make this your moment. Tell God, Lord, I I repent of my sin. I place my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I ask you to uh, invade my life and to change me from the inside out. I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. And I receive your gift of salvation today. Now, I also ask you this question. Has there been a time in your life where you've proclaimed that faith that lives in your heart through baptism? Has there been a time where you followed Christ in believer's baptism? Now, it may be that your moment was just a couple seconds ago, and so you haven't yet had the chance. It may be that You've been a believer for some time, but you've never taken that step of baptism. And today, I want to invite you to take that step. To say, I, I want to be baptized. Will you do it? You can be baptized today. We'll, we'll baptize you in the next service. You can be baptized in the coming weeks. Anytime someone wants to proclaim their faith in Christ, We want to give you the opportunity to do so. And so if that's where you are, the Lord's working in your heart, leading you to take that step of baptism, I'm going to be here at the front during this next song. I'll be here at the front after the service as well. Please come talk to me. It would be my distinct honor to baptize you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, We thank you for uh, the fact that uh, as believers, we are new creations in you. And we pray, Lord, that we will stand for truth and be people of truth. And I thank you, Lord, for this beautiful picture that we call baptism, 
that allows us to publicly proclaim our faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.